Sometimes I like to um, imagine what it was like to be in the first century church. And every one of Paul's epistles seems to have an agenda. And from where I stand, I thank God that the legalists in Jerusalem went up and troubled the churches in Galatia. Otherwise, we may not have had the book of Galatians. I'm, I'm glad that uh, Timothy and Titus struggled in their pastoral ministries, or perhaps we wouldn't have the books of First and Second Timothy, Titus. I'm glad Onesimus ran away from his master, or, or we wouldn't have Philemon. I'm even glad the Corinthians were carnal, divisive, selfish blokes, because if they weren't, we wouldn't have First Thessalonians dealing with all the issues that are there. I really believe that Paul, when he went to every church, taught them the same body of doctrine. I I, I don't think he only talked about the Lord's table to the Corinthians. No, rather they had a problem, and so he wrote to correct it. And and therefore we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the only place in the Pauline epistles, the New Testament doctrinal section of our Bible, the only place where it talks about the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where there's a complete treatise on the subject. And so I'm glad that the Thessalonians were confused about eschatology. I'm glad, although it's the kingdom of God is mentioned in Corinthians, although there's other places where Paul talks about Jesus coming back, I'm glad that the Thessalonians didn't get it or that there were people among them that didn't get it. I'm glad the church was um, up in dithers about it because if they hadn't been, we wouldn't have these two wonderful books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. The Holy Spirit superintended even the problems in the early church for the benefit of you and I and God's glory. And so Paul went to the Thessalonian church or he went to Thessalonica, the town, and many were led to the Lord, but... There were, there were wicked and angry people who chased him out, and he went on to Berea, and then on to Athens, and then finally he ended up down in the peninsula, way at the bottom of the Grecian peninsula, the province of Achaia, in the church of Corinth. While he's there, he sends Timothy back to find out how the Thessalonians are doing. Timothy comes back down, and we're talking about something that took weeks, because we're hundreds of miles here. And so he he comes back down from the the Macedonian, the armpit up there of the Aegean Sea, and he comes back down to Paul and says to Paul, hey, here's what's going on in Thessalonica. Well, some things Paul was happy about, some things not so much, and so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. Somebody else, I think, I don't think it was Timothy, took the letter back to the Thessalonians. They read it, spread it around their churches. That guy then returns all the way back down to Corinth. Paul's there 18 months. And so sometime within this 18-month window, Paul then writes a second letter to the Thessalonians. Apparently the things that the courier brought back uh, didn't completely satisfy Paul that they got it. Imagine that, us not getting something. And so he had to say it again. And so Paul says some of the same things, some reassuring them concerning their faith. In 2 Thessalonians, maybe the second or third book written in our Bible. The chapters divide the book well. Chapter 1, after talking about an introduction, he talks about a perspective on troubles and their faith. Chapter 2 is where he talks about the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ. And then chapter 3, he makes a practical application. Based upon their faith 
And, and when Jesus is coming back, or how that's going to happen, he gives some practical theology concerning work and what to do with people who refuse to work and how to treat them. So the book begins like First Thessalonians with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that trio, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. Grace. As an arrogant, bullheaded murderer, Paul understood the absolute need for grace. Most of us are willing to embrace that we need grace. Grace is everything that God has available to me in the name and the person of Jesus Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God gifting to me what I do not deserve. Grace is God's provision of a way for me to come to Christ, to come to God. Grace is Jesus dying for my sin on Calvary's cross for me. Grace is rooted in the very character of God. It's, if you will, it's, it's a conjunction, a meeting place between God's holiness and his righteousness and his absolute love. Never forget, anything that you do in this life is because of grace. Anything good that you do in this life, I should say is because of the grace of God. Everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you will ever be for good or God is because of God's grace. Peace, he then says. Grace to you. And peace. Notice that this is also from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, most of us in this room are willing to, we say, hey, you have and need grace. Amen, that's me. And you have and need peace. When was the last time you worried? Maybe within the service? <laughs> when was the last time you lost sleep? Maybe this week? When was the last time you had your mind in term? But you see, he says grace and peace to you. Just as grace comes from God, so peace comes from God. We're not always so quick to identify that, but God gives us his peace for every situation, and, and that sets up what he talks about in this first chapter. Verses 3 to 8 in my Bible are one sentence. Now, if you were going to write this as an essay, you'd get a lousy grade. But, but he, he, we were taught as kids that a sentence has a subject and a verb and expresses a complete thought. All right, I'm going to read it, okay, and think with me, what is the center, the heart, the thought that Paul is stating with this one sentence? Ready? I'm not going to try to do it in one breath. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward all each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the children of churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, period. So what is the theme in being Dan Leeds theology? I, I look for repeated ideas in here and check out the words. In verse 4, 
he's got persecutions and tribulations. In verse 5, he says, for which you also suffer. So tribulations, persecutions, suffer. At the end of verse 6, who trouble you. In verse 7, and to give you who are troubled, rest with us. It seems to me the heartbeat of this mega sentence is trouble. Trouble. And, and so I've titled my sermon today, Perspectives on Troubles. Paul says he is bound, verse 3, obligated to thank God for the Thessalonian church. Why? Because their faith was growing and their love for each other was abounding. Growing in faith, abounding in love. That would make a great theme for a marriage. That would make a great theme for a Sunday school class or a, a church. That'd, that would be a heartbeat for any enterprise. Growing in faith and abounding in love. Their faith and love was such to a high level that Paul was bragging, he felt obligated to brag, to all the other churches about their faith and love. Hey, think about the Thessalonians. They're up there and they're being persecuted, but they have faith, abounding faith, growing in love for each other, growing in faith and abounding love. And it was manifest evidence, it was proof, something that was positive, verse 5, of the righteous judgment of God. Now we hear that word judgment and right away we think condemnation. You know, he he judged, he's going to hell or he's going to the prison for 180 years. but, But that's not the sense in this place. We might say, I judge these chairs to be green. But what am I making? I'm, I'm ascertaining something. I'm making a statement based upon what I know to be true. These, that's a judgment. He, we, sometimes we say, he made a judgment call. So, so look at this verse again. Their faith in all their tribulations and persecutions was plain evidence, obvious, of the righteous judgment, the truth truthful decision of God that they may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you also suffer. Number one this morning, perspectives on trouble. Troubles reveal our faith. Troubles reveal our faith. We've used the illustration before that if you're carrying a hot cup of coffee and someone bumps you causing you to spill your hot coffee, they did not cause you to have hot coffee in the cup. They merely helped you to reveal its presence. So when someone bumps you and you explode, they did not cause you to be angry, impatient, arrogant. They just revealed that those things were abounding in you. Troubles reveal whether or not we have faith. Troubles will reveal whether or not we have patience. Troubles reveal whether or not we have love. You see, faith is trust. Faith is is trust that obeys Faith without obedience is, an, <laughs> James says it was dead. It's really merely an opinion. If you have faith and you don't have obedience, if you don't do something because of your faith. Love is our, is our focus, is our attention on something. Love is choosing. We either love ourselves or we love Jesus. That's a choice we make. So when trouble comes, where's my focus? When troubles come, do, do I, oh, poor is me, you know, everything's about me, or is our focus on Jesus? Where does your faith direct your love? Where does your faith direct your focus when there's a problem? In what do you trust? Will you continue to walk the Christ-imitating walk, do, or do troubles reveal 
that you really have no faith. Perspective on troubles. Number one, troubles reveal our faith. Number two, troubles reveal our compatibility for the kingdom of God. He he says in that verse, he says, which is manifest, your faith, the patience and faith that they have, that that he's been bragging about, is plainly evidence that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. So is Paul saying that if you make it through troubles, that is how you get to be saved? Is that what he's saying? That if you make it through troubles, you're saved and you're a Christian, and if you don't make it, well, you say pastor leads. Come on, we've heard way too many sermons here to believe that that's what you think. What does it mean when he says that you may be counted worthy, that troubles and your response to them is how you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God? Maybe what we're misunderstanding here is this phrase, kingdom of God. I will admit to you that I'm growing in my understanding of this phrase. I would have probably, four or five years ago, come to this text and said, yeah, he's talking about heaven, and and our struggles prove that we're worthy of going to heaven. No, 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 I, I don't think that's true anymore. He says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it always points to a messianic reign of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. When the descendant of David, as David was promised in 2 Samuel, that would be reign over the world and that he would rule over the Gentiles and that he would be the supreme king that would set everything right. Isaiah talks about it again and again and again and again. All the prophets point to this, or not all, but most of the prophets repeatedly point to this day. Does the New Testament talk about it too? I believe so. I think when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, that he said It's impending. It's right here. It's if Israel would have repented. I believe that's what John was trying to do and what Jesus was preaching. And and, and so we come here to this place and, and I think that when he says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, I think he's talking about a millennial kingdom. In, in the verses immediately following this, well, let me just back up. Let me, I'm getting ahead of my notes here. Revelation 19 describes the return of Jesus. And in Revelation 19, verse 14, he says there's going to be saints following Christ. I get to ride a horse. I don't like horses. They scare me. I scare them. I, don't, it, I scare them because of my size. I get on and they go, oh. And there's a day coming. I'm riding a big horse and I'm following Jesus And we're coming into Jerusalem and Jesus is going to defeat the nations. Jesus is going to defeat the Antichrist. He is going to set up a kingdom. And then according to Revelation chapter 20 and Paul's writings to the Corinthians, guess who's going to be the deputy mayor of Cottage Avenue? Yeah, it's going to be the Christians, me. We are going to rule and reign with him for 1,000 years. So what if I cannot handle a little trouble now? What if I cannot withstand conflict today? What what if I don't respond to trouble right now? Am I worthy of that responsibility? With that in mind, listen. 
start, I'm going to start with the second half of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, Revelation 19, with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished. Who? Who's going to be punished with everlasting fire? Those who don't obey, those who don't know God. With everlasting destruction. Don't let anybody ever tell you that, oh, God is loving and that God would never send anybody to hell. God would never, that's not God as I believe him to be. Well, I'm sorry, they're fabricating a God that is not the God that wrote the Bible. The Bible plainly says that those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. The bride of Jesus Christ is riding with him. And like the bride, we are going to bask in the power and wealth and the ability of our great king and our great husband who will take care of everything when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those, all those who believe. And then Paul says to them, because our testimony among you was believed. You believed and therefore you are going to be riding in on the horses that day. So worthy of verse 11 says, therefore we pray always, for you that our God would count you worthy. That's the second time in this text he talks about being counted worthy. Worthy of this calling. What calling? (laughs) Coming in with Christ. Basking in the glory that is Jesus Christ. Being being a, a reigner in the kingdom that would be established by Jesus Christ that you may be counted worthy of this calling. And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. It's going to be a wonderful time on earth. I believe troubles reveal our compatibility for the kingdom of God. If I can't, (laughs) by faith, endure troubles now, how can I be part of the governing? How, How can I be responsible for the work of running the world with Christ if I can't be what I ought to be in his name today. I believe troubles, the perspective on troubles, reveal our faith. I believe troubles reveal our compatibility for the kingdom of God. I believe our troubles are inevitable because of our oppressor, because of our impression. He says at the end of verse 5, for which that kingdom that God is going to establish, you also suffer. We are going to be part of that kingdom someday. So we're part of a kingdom that is going to smash Satan. You know, he's not looking forward to that day. According to Revelation chapter 20, smutty face is going to be bound in chains and thrown into a pit where he will burn and fall for a thousand years. And we did it. Well, Jesus did it. But we get to bask in the glory that is Christ on that day. And do you think he wants us to win today? Do you think he likes us? No, he's going to tempt us. He's going to do everything he can to trip us up. I do not blame Satan for my sin. I choose that well enough. I do not blame Satan for Adam's failure. No, 
He blew it. I do not blame Satan for God's people's failure to love God and obey God, but I do know that as long as I'm on this planet, I have, we have, mankind has an enemy, and he will do everything, everything he can, to turn us from God, that we might stumble, that we might make our lives miserable. Troubles reveal our faith. Troubles reveal our compatibility for the kingdom. Troubles are inevitable. Troubles will end. Aren't you glad? (laughs) This morning as we sang these hymns and the choir number fit in so well and best number fit in so well. You know, as, as, as you think about the things that are wrong and broken in this life, aren't you glad they're gonna end? He says, for which you suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay the tribulation with tribulation those who trouble you and give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, rest for a thousand years, rest for eternity with Christ, rest in his person today, sometimes it seems forever. He's been sick forever. This loneliness is forever. This exhaustion never ends. The mountain is just too high. I don't have strength to make it to the top. You know, you're not the first that thought that. I will lift mine eyes to the hills where David the shepherd saw enemies and shadows of that which was wrong. And he says, where does my help come from? And then he makes that grand statement, Psalm 121, to my help comes from the Lord, which makes heaven and earth. Troubles reveal our faith. It reveals our compatibility. It reveals the fact that we have an oppressor, but troubles will end. And note number five today, troubles will be punished and vengeance will be had. In Deuteronomy, Moses prophesied and the Hebrew writer quoted that vengeance is mine, I will repay. A day is coming when God will set everything right. I said everything. Your marriage will be perfect in that day. Your body will be completely without illness in that day. He's going to set everything right. Every sin committed against you will be retributed, will be compensated in that day. He says, those who do not know God, they're going to pay. It is a a carnal, arrogant, unbelieving mind that would say that God would never do this. Because look at he says in verse 6, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those people who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us in flaming fire taking vengeance on those. These shall be punished. It is not unspiritual or immature. to rest in the fact that God is always right and he is going to set everything right. That is not an unchristian attitude. Number six, troubles give 
opportunity for the power and glory of God to be revealed in us. I'll read verses 10 to 12 again. He says, When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admitted among all those who believe, admired, admired, admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you is believed, therefore we also pray concerning you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith. (laughs) He's going to fill that response with power that What is God's agenda? That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be, not will be someday, may be be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various troubles knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. How else will Satan and unbelievers see that we are different It is our response to troubles. Old age is trouble. Old age is the best time in life to prove that God is good and to manifest the glory of God in us. Grief is trouble, but grief is a great time to manifest the power and glory of God in Jesus Christ in us. Sickness, poverty, spiritual oppression, broken relationships, physical or spiritual depression, devilish antics of all kinds are not fun. These things are trouble. They are great weights. But know this, that God allows these things in our lives that Jesus may be glorified in us, And that we may be counted worthy of what he's doing in our life. On the back side of the outline, um, and I'm not smart enough to figure this out, and this is all me, and so this may or may not be true. You can ask Charlie if it makes any sense at all. But last Sunday night, Charlie talked about a chiastic structure two weeks ago. You know, this real fancy term. And so I'm just proving that I was awake, okay, during his sermon here. By using the, but note in this text, in verse 2 he starts with grace. In verse 4 he talks about faith. And then in verses 5 to 7 he talks about troubles in response to that. And then he talks about the vengeance of God in response to the troubles. And then in verse 11 he comes back and talks again about their faith. And then he ends it according to the grace of God. There, Charlie, I can do that too. Anything wrong in your life? Huh? Bill just got married, so nothing's wrong in his life. It's not going to stay that way, Bill. You know that. Now, as long as we're in this life, there will be trouble. How we respond reveals our faith. How we respond reveals our worthiness of what God wants to do in our life today and in the kingdom to come. How we respond reveals that that God is being glorified in us. How we respond to those troubles and what we believe about those troubles proves that the devil is losing 
and that Jesus is the victor and he has already won, how you respond to troubles is all about God and his grace and your faith and respond to that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? As I look around the room, this is personal, isn't it? So make it personal between you and your God right now. What did you learn? How does it apply to your troubles? What are you going to do about it?